Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Before we start, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. My name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at the University of Louisville Norton Children's Hospital. I'm also a member of the PCICS Connections Committee. Today, I have the opportunity to interview Dr. Becky Bertrand, a pediatric cardiac intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. She presented her work on a chest tube removal algorithm that decreased chest tube duration at the PCICS meeting in Miami this past December. Thank you so much, Becky, for joining me. So tell me a little bit about your project and what got you interested in this work. Sure. So um, our institution was, as a group, looking at a variety of projects that they were hoping would improve quality of care and care delivery. And um, there was an analysis done, and one of the areas that they identified that might be an opportunity for room for improvement, especially in regard to length of stay, was... ICU care in general and um, chest tube removal specifically. Um, They had looked at operating room stuff, other projects within the ICU, and the one that we decided to start with was this chest tube removal project. Um, So I was asked to be a part of it, and it was really, though, a huge group of people, including surgeons, CV surgery PAs, nurses, some quality improvement specialists from our institution that all got together and sort of at the start to, to put the project together. Great. And so tell us about your study design. So what we did was in the beginning, we sat down and did just a current state assessment and tried to figure out and we thought about everything that goes into that decision-making process of how you decide whether or not you're going to take a chest tube out, which surprisingly it sounds like such a simple thing like are we going to take the tube out or not and then we ended up with this diagram that had literally like 15 to 20 different steps in it with all these different factors that you have to consider when you're considering removing a chest tube and so that was kind of how it started and then once we went through and had agreed upon each of those steps and how those were going to relate to one another um, then we sat down and looked at one of the things that was part of the algorithm was volume of chest tube output. Um, I think that's a pretty common one that people consider. And um, for that, in order to get that criteria, we looked back at historical data from patients in the preceding one and a half to two years. And so I think there were about 500 chest tubes and close to 300 admissions that we reviewed and looked at the chest tube volume output in 12-hour increments. So like 12 hours prior to removal, 12 to 24, and 24 to 36 hours before the chest tubes were removed and looked at both mean and median um, volumes for three different um, weight groups. So we did less than 10 kilos, 10 to 20, and um, 20 to 40 kilos. And then patients who were over 40 kilos, it had to be less than their weight in terms of the volume each chest tube put out in the 12 hours prior to removal. In the end, we ended up conservatively setting our volume criteria uh, at one standard deviation above the mean for each of those three age groups. 
Um, but so that was just like one piece of that puzzle. And so I think the first step was getting together and again, deciding, agreeing on each of those steps and how we were going to um, treat the various factors, figuring out the volume criteria. And then it was moving into actually making it part of the workflow, which equally, um, I think, labor intensive. Yeah, absolutely. And when you reviewed the historical data, did you find that there was a decent amount of practice variation in when patients' chest tubes got removed based on volume, or were you already pretty consistent about that? I don't remember the standard deviations, you know, exactly, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm confident there was a good amount of, of uh, practice variation, even just in that one little piece. Yeah. And at your institution, um, who typically was the person deciding to remove the chest tubes? Was it typically the intensivist, the surgeon, a joint decision between the groups? It's usually a joint decision. So every day of the week, except for Mondays and Thursdays at eight o'clock, we get together, um, we being the two ICU, so intensivists who are on service, um, the cardiology staff who are on that week, and then as many surgeons who are in town and are available, which um, often is all three of them, come and meet in this large conference room where we have a big screen that we're able to display the chest x-rays on. And so then the post-call critical care fellow will present every patient in the ICU just from bed one to 24. And we, if there's an x-ray to be shown, they put that up there. And then they report the, as part of their thing, we talk about what happened in the preceding 24 hours and what the plan's gonna be for the day. And part of that is talking about the chest tubes, what the volumes were and are they gonna come out or not. And so um, even prior to having the algorithm, it was a bit of a group decision, um, but it certainly streamlined the process when we could say, okay, well, do they meet criteria, do they not? And um, that was helpful, but it is nice to have that even without the algorithm, that collaborative sort of approach to, to deciding about chest tubes, because sometimes there are things that the CV surgery PA knows about the patient that maybe the ICU staff is not aware of or you know the other way around. And so that it's really helpful, I think, to share that information. Absolutely. I think that's um, one of the best things about our specialty is that pretty much across the board, there's a lot of collaboration between all the groups of people taking care of these patients. Yeah. Um, so in addition to volume, was there any other pieces to your algorithm to help you decide on chest tube removal? Yes. Um, so just to give you a few things that were in there, um, does the patient have intracardiac lines? Is the patient on heparin? If they are, is it therapeutic? Are we treating them for a clot somewhere else? MPO status, do they have a history of a chylus effusion? And if so, have they had any, have they received any food? Are they eating anything yet? Would we even know if they were gonna have um, chylus output? Um, is there an air leak? Uh, so things like that were some of the other things that are on that algorithm to consider. Okay, and can you describe the, the process of implementing your algorithm in the ICU? Yeah, so this, um, the actual impl implementation really was heavily uh, on the CV surgery PAs because as part of this, we created a tool within the electronic health record where basically the tool would pull in chest tube volumes um, into this, basically into the daily progress notes. So we had the chest tube volumes and then there was also a drop down menu where for each chest tube, it would list the volume and then the CV surgery PA would pick, you know, 
remove chest tube, leave chest tube because, and then there were all these different options. So like excessive volume or pacemaker dependent or chylus or, and then there was another you know, box where they could write in what the issue was. And then this all, after they completed each of those boxes or you know selections for each of the chest tubes, then this all got pulled into their daily progress note. So they would also, you know, they could put in whatever they wanted in the actual progress note as well in terms of like text, um, if they wanted to add stuff about what we were thinking or the patient's going back to the operating room or, you know, stuff like that, or they're having a procedure or chest is open or that kind of stuff. So um, working, I guess, building, so the first part was actually building the tool with the IT people and getting that within the electronic health record and then working with the PAs to figure out how to, you know, were there things that were not working, you know, how is it pulling the information incorrectly and then working with the nurses because sometimes if a chest tube was removed, you know, they would have to clear that as a, like the line drain, you know, part of it and if they didn't take it out of the computer then it would show up. And we were tracking compliance as well with the whole process. So there were that was a lot of our work was spent uh, optimizing both the tool itself and then education with the nurses and then working back with the PAs and saying like, hey, are you just not having time or, you know, figuring out if there was documentation missing, why was that happening? And so it was quite it was quite a process. <laughs> uh, yes, I think always implementation is one of the hardest parts to any sort of quality improvement um, project and certainly getting buy-in from all of the people involved. Well, I think it's especially hard when, I mean, we knew that each chest tube was being assessed every day. I mean, you just, like, I I know that they're seeing all the patients, you know, they're not seeing all the patients and they're not looking at each of these chest tubes, but then to ask them to actually, you know, it definitely increased the amount of time that they had to spend writing a note and and at least initially it def it increased their the amount of time and so i think um getting that buy-in and making sure to give them positive feedback from the families when things would you know like for example we also increased the frequency of our assessments so if a chest tube had borderline volume in the morning the pas would come back a little afternoon and check and see if the you know, output had trailed off, and if it did, they removed the chest tube in the afternoon. And so we had um, about 50 chest tubes that were removed in the afternoon as a result, so a day early. And um, to give that feedback from the families, the positive feedback about how great it was to have that chest tube out, and then the nurses feeling like they also had a role in this because they would they really kind of took it among themselves and would approach the PAs in the afternoon and say, hey, I know this wasn't even borderline in the morning, but now if you look back at the 12-hour window, it's really trailed off and could we get this out? And um, I think, so that was that was important, I think, to have people remember why we were doing this and that it wasn't just to make the day more difficult, which sometimes <laughs> that's how it is though, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And does your institution have a specific sort of diuretic management plan so everybody who's got chest tubes gets IV diuretics, or is there anything sort of uh, prescribed around the diuretic management in these patients? There isn't anything written in stone. I think generally, um, in general, as part of um, one of my colleagues' surgical home, like perioperative care um, plan, uh, we do try to by post-op day one have patients on some diuretic 
regimen, but it isn't prescribed very strictly. You know, I mean, they're really specific about exactly how you want to do that. I would say that, um, from what I know of my partners, anecdotally, most patients with chest tubes are on IV diuretics, and that when we when the chest tubes come out, that tends to be our cue to move them along in terms of yeah, getting back to, to the oral stuff. Excellent. So what were the uh, results of your study? What did you find? Well, we found that the chest tube duration did decrease um, in, in these patients, which was great. We also saw um, a decrease in hospital stay and um, hospital length of stay and hospital costs. There was no change in ICU length of stay, which I guess isn't totally that surprising. I think probably to us just suggests that a patient's stay in the ICU is more determined by their severity of illness than how, you know, how long they've had a chest tube in. Um, but it was exciting to see some of these changes um, and, and then that they were sustained. And also we tracked chest tube reinsertions to make sure that we weren't, uh, we really set our criteria fairly conservatively. So we had only had um, one chest tube reinserted like within the, the preceding six months. And in the 22 months that we were tracking, have been tracking the data, we saw just two chest tubes reinserted. So I think based on that, um, we really feel like if we could be more aggressive about chest tube removal and um, probably be able to do it safely and not have a ton of chest tubes reinserted. And so I think that's sort of where we're moving next would be to really take a close look at the data, both in regard to um, maybe volume of chest tube, like when, you know, redo that analysis of the 12 hours and when we remove chest tubes and also look at reasons why we left chest tubes in, when did we deviate from the protocol, and then probably our next step would be to sort of move forward into a new phase where we modify something in regard to, you know, whether it's the volume criteria or something else to sort of try and push the needle a little further and see if we can get even further reduction in those in those numbers. Yeah, those seem like really impressive results with only two chest tubes yeah. to be re yeah. reinserted. Was there anything uh, unique about those patients? Was it chylothorax? Yes, they both were. Um, one was a patient who had a mechanical valve and needed to be on anticoagulation. Um, and because of that, redeveloped uh, hemothorax as a result of being on that um, anticoagulation. And then the other patient did have chylus effusion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to be a, a particularly challenging right. population. Yeah. Yep. So um, what was your post-chest tube removal process? Did you routinely uh, assess x-rays or did you just base your assessments on clinical exam? Um, we, up until recently, actually did routinely get post-removal x-rays um, for chest tubes. And then after reviewing, and I wasn't part of this process, but one of the PAs had reviewed um, the data on how often are we picking up pneumothoraces that are not clinically apparent on these x-rays. And I don't know the numbers, but it was a, such a small number that we've now uh, in the last couple of months have transitioned to a new sort of protocol or, or approach where uh, if the tube is removed without incident, according to the PA, uh, that and the patient is otherwise well, 
we will not be getting that post um, removal x-ray provided that with the understanding that the PA will tell the rounding team like by the way you know just so that everyone's on the same page I did not get a post you know removal x-ray so that in case the patient does develop some sort of symptom later we all know that there was no film done and we should you know keep that in mind right what is your kind of long-term compliance plan because again as part of this QI work um, those two pieces implementation and then long-term follow-up seem to be the the hardest things to actually carry out at the bedside. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, certainly I think the documentation and compliance with not the assessments, but just documenting, you know what I mean? Getting those documentation, the documentation done, we had said had to be done by noon and sometimes depending on the day, there were patients who had it done later. But we spent, I mean, just a lot of time trying to improve, you know, that documentation compliance. and. Um, at this point right now, rather, so part of that process was doing a lot of chart review and like deep dives and really trying to look at each of these things and going back to the PA who had done the note or who was responsible for that patient that day and like following up with him or her and saying, hey, do you remember what happened with this or talking to the nurses and stuff. And so now that we have reached this uh, more steady state of improved compliance we're continuing to track it and then if we have a time where we're seeing a, a decrease in the compliance that's going to be our cue to sort of go back and start doing those deep dives again so we're no longer if it's just a little bit of variability um, we're okay with that as long as we're really kind of above the around 85 percent um, but if we're consistently trending below that our plan is to go back to looking looking again so, but um, otherwise, I think it's just more of just the the positive, you know, continuing to get that positive feedback because it I think yeah. helps. And at this point, it really does feel like it's part of the workflow. And there's been, you know, it's been months since we've gone back and had to say like, hey, you know, can you just please remember, you know, <laughs> we're gonna do this. So um, that's good. Like I feel, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that at some point there's going to be new PAs though who are going to have to you know get into the into the system and so we'll have to work on it again and we're in the process yeah, but yeah, yeah once it becomes sort of ingrained into the unit culture then it's a lot easier to yeah. sustain mm -hmm. I think and when you see such positive results then people are vested in right. making sure you continue to yes. achieve those positive outcomes yeah so that's wonderful it's a really exciting project well, thank you well, that's really great work, Dr. Fortran. I appreciate you um, talking with me about that today. Thanks, Deanna. It's been really nice. Appreciate it. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to look for other episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or subscribe to get all the latest episodes as they're released. Once again, find out more at our website, PCICS.org. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.